Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we'd like to do some myth-busting here on the podcast. We've done some in the past, and one area that is really prime for busting some myths is burn basics. And emergency burn care has tons of myths and dogma out there that still exist, Burn management has changed pretty drastically over the past 20 years, but some old mantras have persisted. So we're going to go back to the burn basics, fill in the gaps with current best practice updates. Before we move into the burns themselves, we have to start with the ABCs. And you can't get into the burns without concentrating on inhalational injury and that airway issue, big A. And this is one where, while we've seen in trauma and some other situations over the past 10 or 15 years that circulation and stop the bleed may take precedent in a burn situation that a is still first so when do we intubate burns and i had a tough burn recently where i was forced to to walk down these slam dunk warning signs versus the concerning warning signs if you see facial burns if you hear strider or a hoarse voice if you see persistent hypoxia or an extremely short of breath patient Those, to me, are the slam-dunk warning signs. When you see those, that patient needs to be intubated sooner rather than later. That swelling is going to get worse before it gets better. There are also some some concerning signs that we look for and probably need to be stratified from those slam-dunk signs, and that is the black sputum, the sin's facial hair. Those can be really concerning, especially when they're paired with obvious significant facial burns, strider, hoarse voice, hypoxia, and and shortness of breath. But singe facial hair alone, nasal and oral soot alone, obviously we want to watch closely, but we may not have to rush and intubate all those straight away. Anything you want to throw in there? I think you have to look at the context of of the mechanism of injury of the burn. You know, if it's a closed space uh, thermal event, then it's way more likely to have an in- inhalational component versus just a, a blast uh, thermal event, like when someone's got hot steam from their car, their radiator, or something of that sort, Casey. So I always kind of put it all together with the mechanism of injury, and it makes me way more concerned if they've had an, you know rescue from an enclosed space. So flash burns, less likely, not impossible, but less likely to cause inhalational injury. And mine was kind of a combo of the two, morbidly obese gentleman, talking normally, normal oxygen saturation. So none of the slam dunk warning signs, just a couple of the concerning signs. And I ended up discussing it at length with the intensivist and and anesthesia and all of my consultants. And we watched him very closely and he ended up not needing a definitive airway. So I felt like we dodged a bit of a bullet there as far as a potential difficult procedure and less risk for the patient, better patient outcome in the end. And if you have inhalational injury, it is an independent predictor of death. It increases your mortality by 20%. So not only do we need to act on these, we need to mind them very closely because they're sicker patients in general. So not a discussion about airway management and burns. We really want to talk more about burns in general and burns basics, but it's hard to go past that initial step. So let's move past the airway and into staging. This is one where we admittedly probably don't do 
as good a job as we think we do. Talk to about, talk to the listeners about staging. Right. Well, it comes in two components. So I think when I think of staging a burn, I think of how big and how bad. And I start with the how big. Classically, we've all been taught this rule of nines or the the Lund Browder uh, formula to to size these burns. To me, I'll be honest with you. I I, I remember those for the board exam every time I have to research the rule of nines because you're always going to get a couple of questions on it. And then I use the tried and true method, which is just one per, the palm of the patient of the patient's hand is about one percent. So you can you can always look these things up in a reference. Remember, the little kitty rule of nines is a little bit different than the adult rule of nines because they got a bigger head in proportion to their body. Uh, but you can you can look those up as far as the severity of the burn, it's really the nomenclature has changed there to superficial partial thickness and full thickness in lieu of this first, second, and third degree burn. So I think uh, that's probably the biggest myth busting today is to stop using these one, two, and three inches superficial um, partial thickness and then full thickness. And how do you determine which is which? Um, I think I'll start by saying that superficial, you can have a really bad sunburn and we don't, we don't need to, to do a body surface area of a sunburn, right? When you're sunburned, you're sunburned and, uh, you know, they hurt. Uh, what's our treatment for that? It's just topicals and NSAIDs help really, really a ton of, with the pain there from the inflammatory pain. Um, as far as partial thickness and full thickness, determining those, there's a little bit of dogma there that full thickness are painless. Remember, these don't exist in, you know, by themselves they kind of exist in areas where you may have a, a partial thickness and then you may go to full thickness and as the burn uh, uh, develops over the first like 12 hours you may have one convert to a full thickness injury so partial thickness full thickness those are the ones we're counting as far as the the size of those things one percent of the of a burn is the patient's the palm of the patient's hand is a the mechanism I use for that. And don't forget to include the fingers there. When you when you draw your circle and you're making your estimate, the palm and the fingers of the patient hand equals 1%. That's especially important in, in little ones. You have to include their fingers in that estimation. So, And just to hit on a couple things there as well, what we really want to do is take the superficial burns out of the equation. That's where we overestimate is we overestimate by including everything that's red, Re regardless of whether we're partial thickness, full thickness, somewhere in between, all those need to be counted towards staging, but we need to make sure we get rid of the redness. Cause like you said, that's just a summer. And that's really where we, where we get it wrong. We get it wrong with including that, that superficial redness and overestimating an arm and a leg burn does not always equal a full 18 to 20% from the rule of nines. It, it's, very rarely is the full arm and the full leg actually burned. And like you said, they're dynamic. They can deepen over time. So our initial guess is just that. It's a guess. Time will tell us where they evolve to. There was a meta-analysis in the Journal of Burn Care in 2019. We'll link it in the show notes. The most common burn that's overestimated are those that are less than 20%. So we do a pretty poor job in those mild to moderate burn areas. Up to 75% of burn transfer, transfers in that study were unnecessary. 
a, a 2021 study in the burn center ED showed that the docs in the ED there were better at estimating. Well, that's not shocking to me because they've got more practice. So if you're an emergency doc who works primarily in a burn center, you're going to be better than the emergency doc who works out in the community in a critical access hospital. So when we're thinking about it from a paramedic standpoint, from an EMS standpoint, none of us or very few of us are burn transport experts from the EMS side. So this is something that we don't see often. We need to be aware of where these pitfalls exist. In other words, knowing that those low end burns are where we often overestimate and that can cause trouble. Where does that cause trouble? That causes trouble in fluids. Talk about fluids a little bit. Right. I think there's a lot of dogma here. The number one thing to talk about with fluids is don't overdo it. I think we've all kind of had the Parkland formula drilled into us. And as Casey said, if we count every area of redness, and we'll do some math here in a minute, very simple math, but it really adds up pretty quickly. And remember that overgiving fluid can be detrimental for these patients, right? They've still got to diurese all this fluid that we're giving them off. So it may make their edema edematous states worse. The literature shows us that we're way more likely to overestimate than underestimate. Remember, this could cause problems uh, with edema of the wounds, respiratory compromise. And we've all kind of been taught the Parkland formula, which is the patient's weight in kilos uh, times four uh, mLs per per kg um, times the body surface area. And that can be a big number. So if you take a, a big guy like me and you give four, that's 400, and you call it a 20% burn times 20, right? I mean, that's a big, big number. And you give half of that volume in the first eight hours and the next half over the next 16 hours. So you give all that big amount that you calculated over the first 24 hours. So patients getting a tremendous amount of fluid. I think that talking with all the burn experts and, and looking at the literature, you can modify that to two mLs per kg times the body surface area. Same, same formula, half given over the first eight hours and the next bit given over the next 16 hours. But better than that, these are all critical care patients, Casey's. I think we follow their urine output. Follow their urine output should be one cc per kilogram per hour. And that's, that's what your goal should be. So you should really have goal-related resuscitation to their urine output. Just some EMS-specific points to reiterate here. Most burn experts in burns 15% or less recommend PO yeah. rehydra rehydration. So we don't need to parkland every 5, 10, even 12 to 15% burn. Urine output is excellent. That's exactly what we're probably going to monitor ahead of all of these formulas. And when we think about Parkland in general, whether you modify it, the multiplier of two or you use the old school four, half of that has to go in in the first eight hours. So from an EMS, even ED standpoint there, we want to get some fluid started for the big burns. But as far as getting the exact calculation and completing that resuscitation, that's a resuscitation over half in the first eight with the rest over the next 16 hours. So we're not talking about seconds and minutes here. So when we think about respiratory status and pulmonary edema, wound edema, wound edema that compromises to compartment syndrome, it's better that we're potentially cautious here. There's no reason to, to drown all these people in fluids. And lastly, we need to avoid vasopressors if at all possible. Peripheral vasoconstriction and wound healing don't really go 
hand in hand together. What about basic burn treatment in EMS? What should we do for the burns themselves? And cold water initially, it should be instructions from dispatch, you know, scene wise, if you've got somebody who's, who's got a significant burn, rinsing that and diluting and cleaning with cold water is where we want to start. No ice, ice can over vasoconstrict and you end up with, with worsened outcomes there. Smaller burns, moist gauze, larger burns, dry, sterile dressings. We want to keep the patient as a whole warm. Large burns with moist dressings are just going to end up with, with hypothermia. That's why we want to transition to dry, sterile dressings the larger those burns get. And just like any trauma patient, hypothermia is going to be a component there that's going to affect you know, your, your hemodynamic status significantly if we've got a hypothermic, hypercoagulable, hypocalcemic, acidotic trauma patient, burn patient. We really want to make sure that we keep them warm. Pain control is key. That it probably should go without saying. We really want to make sure that we're aggressively managing these folks' pain. Uh, narcotic options, fentanyl here at MCHD, uh, ketamine for pain as well is, is an excellent option here. And even when you get into those 50% or greater, really difficult to control patients, they're often very anxious, very agitated, difficult to assess. There's a progression there to, to dissociation with ketamine for those patients just for almost humanity's sake. And lastly, I know we don't carry it on the truck, but for any ED listeners out there, stop slathering your burns in Silvadine. While we were all taught that, I know you were, I was, I put gallons of Silvadine on these burns. The burn folks and don't. We, we realize the burn folks cannot assess the burn because it's covered in this pasty white goo that you can never get off of there. It seems obvious looking back that you don't want to take this visual diagnostic key that is going to determine everything going forward. How the burn looks. Is it partial thickness? Is it full thickness? Nah, let's coat it in some white paste. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What is the therapy there? What is the recommendation now to go over with the listeners as far as any topical ointments? I tend to stick to just to bacitracin. Right. It's, it's available in the ED. It's clear. It's clear. It's, it's, it's easy to find. There's, you know, there's some other burn specialist substances out there that exist. For my simple ED practice, I, I stick to bacitracin. What about side traumas or other coexisting conditions that can exist with burns that we can't forget? What are a couple of those? Right. So when we're talking about our sick burn patients, a lot of these patients have been extricated from an enclosed space. We have to think, especially if they have altered mental status, seizures, coma, or cardiac arrest, you have to, have to, have to think carbon monoxide toxicity and cyanide toxicity. Remember, cyanide can be from any... Uh, uh, combustible material that's common in houses, so furniture, uh, really any household furnishing that you burn, you have the possibility for cyanide toxicities. We won't get into the weeds. You can listen to the, the CO podcast. If you want to get a little bit more background on, on carbon monoxide toxicity and cyanide toxicity, the bottom line for EMS and for fire services is that who do we want to give the cyano kit to? And in our practice, in our service, it's really a select group of people with a potential to have that toxicity, i.e. they've been pulled from a closed space fire and they are A, either in cardiac arrest, actively seizing, or have altered mental status. Have to have one of those three things. 
if we get them from an enclosed space fire, you can't forget the simple stuff, right? Look for other injuries. These can sometimes be blast injuries where you may have secondary traumas. So don't forget, if, especially if they're altered to mind their neck, uh, you know, readily use sea collars. Remember to take their clothing and jewelry off. These things always swell, and it's really difficult until the injury matures to see what's going to swell and how much it's going to swell. So remember to move this move these constricting clothes, remove the jewelry for sure. Um, look for circumferential burns. Those are really dangerous burns, and Dr. Patrick brought it up earlier. Um, the more fluids we give and things like that, you worry about compromising circulation, compart developing deep compartment syndromes, things like that. So circumferential burns are a big warning sign for, for developing those types of complications. So just remember those little, little pearls that just not only the burn, but this secondary thing. So carbon monoxide and uh, cyanide toxicities, secondary traumas, and circumferential burns. And these can be visually, smell-wise, patient distress-wise, really tough patients. And it's easy to get distracted by the significance of the external burn itself. So that's a good reminder not to forget things they could have breathed in, the CO and the cyanide, burning mattresses, burning couch cushions, burning plastics, and then the fact they could have been blasted back and have a secondary C-spine injury. They could have pneumothorax. They could have spleen-liver injury if they had a fall and secondary trauma. So uh, second injury is always the more difficult one to diagnose, so don't don't forget those. Let's wrap it up with some take-home points, some, some good burn basics for the listeners out there. Don't forget the airway first. This is one where ABC definitely applies, so look for severe facial burns. Listen for that hoarse voice, strider, signs of airway swelling, obvious dyspnea, increased work of breathing, and hypoxia. Burn patients are trauma and tox patients as well, like we just talked about. Don't forget secondary trauma, secondary carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning. Palm and fingers, 1%. So draw that mental circle and use that on your partial thickness and your full thickness portion of the burn to score and stage. Pain control is going to be key here, may even aid healing. So don't, don't, this is not a time to skimp on pain control. These are, these are uber painful. And then when we're thinking about fluids, we probably over-resuscitate more than we under-resuscitate. So be judicious. If you use Parkland formula, it's probably a good idea to back that off to modified Parkland, which is two as your multiplier. Let's go through math one more time. If you've got a 100 kilo patient with 50% body surface area burns, so 100 kilos times 50 is going to be five liters times two, that patient's going to get 10 liters over 24 hours. Now, the half of that has to go in over the first eight. So what would we want to do in an EMS setting? We probably want to just start with the, with the warm fluid bolus. There's no reason that we're going to pour in all of that over your transport time, especially here at MCHD where we've got transport times in that 30-minute range, some quite a bit less, some a little bit more. But there's no reason to overdo it. Let the experts, the burn experts, uh, score those patients and stage them appropriately and they've got eight hours for their half of that fluid to go in and then another 16 hours for the second half there's nothing here that's going to be timed in minutes or seconds this is not a 
tension pneumothorax situation or a stop the bleed tourniquet situation. This is something where we want to get access and we want to get fluid started if we've got a severe big bad burn, but we don't have to get all of that Parkland in that quickly. And remember those 15% or less burns, those can orally rehydrate. There's no reason to resuscitate those to the, to the max. If you've got a bunch of sunburn, you need some Motrin, some aloe vera, maybe some prednisone if it's really bad, and that's about as far as we want to go. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, I think that'll uh, get it for me. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions or concerns, email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like or review wherever you listen out there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you again real soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.